Well, good evening, everyone. My name is David Stevenson, and I'm one of the assistant pastors. Or if you were here earlier and heard James's sermon, I'm also a part-time professor of planetary science at Caltech doing research on what will happen when the sun burns out. Some of you found that way too far-fetched and funny. (laughs) So if you were here earlier today, we're going to spend a second time looking at Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 573. Uh, James focused on the first six verses in this chapter, and tonight uh, we will focus on chapter 7. But we are going to read uh, the entire section of Scripture again. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that you would shine the light of your word into the darkness, that you would send Holy Spirit to enable us to comprehend grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one Advent devotional I received this week reminded me that promises are a part of our lives. Some of them are big, some of them are small. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. Some of those promises we make to others, and some of those promises we even make to ourselves. For example, we even make promises about vacation. Mom, I'll promise I'll be home for the holidays. Or in marriage, I promise to love in sickness and in health. For some people, they make a promise about their vocation. I promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. For others, we make promises in community. I promise to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. We make promises about addictions. I promise to never drink alcohol again. We make promises about vulnerability. I promise I'll never share that again. We make promises all the time, but the most important promises in life aren't the ones that we make. At MPC, we believe that the most life-changing promises are the ones that God makes to us. And so that's what we're going to consider tonight, how the promises of God 
fulfill our deepest longings, and change us for all of eternity. So I invite you to just spend a few moments in Isaiah 9 looking at the promises and the person making those promises. First, the promise. That's the first half of verse 7 in chapter 9. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So let's break down that promise a little bit. The first part of that promise is we hear the promise of a king, right? That's what the throne of David is talking about. It says this king who will come will be a descendant of David. And this goes back to the promise that God had even made to David in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne would endure forever. So there's a promise of a king, but there's also a promise of a kingdom. Notice the language there in verse 7 government, kingdom, and peace. That refers to this king's rule and his reign, and that there will be shalom or flourishing or peace in this kingdom. Now it's striking because we don't usually associate the word peace with government. And peace describes how this kingdom will grow, that it will flourish through grace. And then notice how long this kingdom will last. It says, of the increase, no end. I love how the ESV study Bible states about this verse, what it states about this verse. It says, it is talking about an empire of grace that will forever expand and every moment will be better than the last. You see, earthly empires will crumble from the Ottoman to the Roman Empire, but his rule will grow and it will never end. It is forever. And what will this kingdom look like? He will uphold it with justice and righteousness. This is the double foundation of his reign that is opposed to oppression and injustice. The promise in Isaiah 7 is of a king who will bring grace to the world. You know, this is a familiar theme in a lot of books and movies. Think about King Richard in Robin Hood. Think about Neo in the matrix. Think about Arthur in the sword in the stone. Stories like these resonate because we hope for a hero to rescue us from the darkness in the world. So the question we ask is how do these promises in Isaiah fulfill our deepest longings even in dark circumstances? You see, all of us in this room, whether we would describe ourselves as followers of Jesus or not, we all long for a Savior to save us from hard situations. We want a political leader to unite the country and lead us to a season of prosperity and peace. We want a spouse to meet our loneliness where we are known and loved. We want a boss that recognizes and rewards our hard work and talent. We want a friend in school to sit with us at lunch and play with us on the playground. We want a cure for our terminal cancer. We want anything to calm our fears and to cover our shame. In summary, we all long for a Savior to save us from some situation. And the promise in Isaiah is that we have been offered an ultimate Savior 
to save us from these things and more. Because Isaiah is talking about a king who deals with the root of darkness, alienation from God. The promise is a king who will bring grace to the world. That's really what James's sermon was about earlier today. The summary of the teaching of Isaiah 9, he put this way, God will act to bring about a new situation for his people and a new relationship with him by defeating enemies and establishing peace through his Savior, human child, who is God himself. So that is the promise in Isaiah 9. But now we look at the person making the promise in the second half of this verse. Look at verse 7 again. I love it. The zeal of the Lord will do this. I want to talk about this in three Ds real quickly. Definition, depth, and determination. Let's talk about the definition of zeal. You know, zeal is amazing because it's an attribute that's usually associated or described of humans. Very rarely is God described in this way. In fact, I only found six times in the Bible where God is described as being full of zeal. Five of them are in Isaiah, and one of those is in Second Kings. And so the word zeal in Hebrew means jealousy or envy. But obviously, when it's using it to describe God, it's not a negative. Think about Isaiah 63, 15. This is how the prophet describes zeal. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? And then he gives a definition of zeal. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. Alex Moitier, a theologian, describes zeal as that jealousy that is a component of all true love, like a spouse unwilling to share the affections with another. G.K. Chesterton calls this zealous grace the furious love of God. And Charles Spurgeon described as it, it as the fervency of the infinite. I think it's what Jesus is talking about in Luke 15 when he gives us those three parables. You know, the parable of the shepherd looking for a lost sheep, the woman looking for a lost coin, and who could forget the father looking for the lost son. That's the definition of zeal. But let's consider the depth of zeal. Notice who it says will carry this out. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Now, that's not a title we're very familiar with. So what does that mean, Lord of hosts? Well, in some of your Bibles, it may be translated as Lord Almighty, or literally, it is Lord of armies. It's a designation of God as a warrior and a commander over his troops in heaven and on earth who fights and wins battles for his people. Listen to Isaiah 42. It says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Or Isaiah 59. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You know, Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage, The Zeal of the Lord. 
And he pointed out that as amazing and as beautiful as creation is, the zeal of the Lord is not used when God created the world. It's not even used when describing providence. But the only place in Scripture where the zeal of the Lord is mentioned is when it is referring to redemption alone. I think that's why in Luke one thirty two, if we know that the king is going to be a descendant of David, Luke, he writes, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. You see, also in Ephesians 1, when Paul is writing about redemption, he tells us that it could not be secured by us, but by Christ alone, and that stirred by his love, before he even created the world, God's zeal determined that he would choose for his own a people and make them in his children, dying on a cross for our sins, and when risen, establishing a union between God and man. What this means is that our God is not a cold, ambivalent, and removed spectator, but he is an engaged, passionate, and fervent lover. That's why the Bible describes Jesus as a bridegroom and his church as his bride. The Lord of hosts can save and liberate us from anything because he is powerful and passionate enough to defeat our enemies of sin death, and hell. So we see the definition of zeal. We see the depth of zeal. And then finally, the determination of zeal. The very end of verse 7. The Lord of hosts will do this. He will do this. I love the way that Pastor James put it this morning. With God, the future is so certain that it can be written as history. In other words, God is saying, Don't worry, I got this. I'm going to finish what I started. And no matter how bad it looks, in the end, the Lord will prevail. He will make all things perfect. He will make all things beautiful. He will make us perfect. He will make us beautiful. That's that promise in Philippians 1.6 when Paul writes, And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God knows who his people are and he will find them no matter their depths of sin or unbelief. And he will preserve us to the end and for eternity. As Spurgeon put it, not a single jot or tittle of the covenant of his grace will go unfulfilled. The son of David will rule with justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. The one who makes the promises has the zeal to accomplish them. So how does the person who fulfills our deepest longings enable us to be the people that we want to be? Well, as his zeal for us seeps into our bones, we will be enabled to live lives of joyful obedience Confidence, courage, compassion, and conviction, because all will certainly be accomplished by him. The gospel of grace will prevail in a world of darkness. And Spurgeon said, like a wave of the sea receding from a frightened child, so will the darkness recede from his people. 
that gives us strength to live with our own failures, to forgive our enemies, and to face death with confidence. When we experience the zeal of the Lord of hosts, then, that, then we are strengthened to be the people who are capable of perseverance and endurance for the beautiful and the good. The person who makes the promises enables us to be the people that we want to be. Prophet Isaiah reminds us that promises have been made and kept by the Lord. So in conclusion, let's spend this Advent season remembering the promises of God to light the way to eternity. This week, I came across a post on social media from someone named Patrick Mead. He's a pastor and a musician in Nashville. And he posted about placing his father with dementia in care and then having to drive away. He said he could only be there every couple weeks, so he taped a sign to his father's door. He said that he wanted the staff to know who the new man in room number 14 truly is. And this is what the sign said on the door. My name is Bill Mead. I was born in abject poverty. I became a warrior, U.S. Navy, Korea War era. I then laid aside my weapons and became a minister and missionary. I traveled the world, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing hope, medicine, and love to the United States, Europe, South America, and Africa. I am slowly leaving this earth for my heavenly home. This may take a while. Thank you for remembering who I was and who I am. I am a man, a warrior, a missionary, a father, a friend, and much more. And I have one more river to cross. You see, the prophet's candle that we lit today, that's the sign of the door. That's the sign on the door that reminds us who Jesus is. And perhaps it would say something like this. His name is Jesus Christ. He was born in abject poverty. He became a warrior. He laid aside his weapons and became born in the likeness of a human. He traveled to the world to spread the good news, bringing victory over sin, death, and Satan to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He left this earth after he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for his brothers and sisters. Please remember who he is and what he has done. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, and so much more. And though it may take a while, he will come again to finish what he started. Friends, through Advent, let's remember the promises of God and the person who saves us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for these words that were written and spoken over 700 years before the birth of Christ. Father, I can't imagine waiting four days for something, much less 700 days for the deliverance to come. And Father, we've been waiting for over 2,000 years for you to return and to finish what you started and you're just waiting for your father to say, go and finish it. And so, Father, in this Advent season, in a world of darkness, we want to prepare and to wait well for you. And we want to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, while we wait, 
Encourage us with the promises of your word that are made by one who cannot break them. Father, help the zeal of the Lord to enable us to be full of zeal for your glory and for the world to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.